Talari, and welcome everybody once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article and do actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m., with the next call being on Tuesday, February 17th. The article for that call will be Medical Care for the Final Years of Life. When you're 83, it's not going to be 20 years, uh, by Dr. David Rubin, published in the December 23rd-30th issue of JAMA. And uh, we'd be delighted if you can join us for that. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Hussein Hollins, first author of the article Acute Onset Floaters and Flashes is the Patient at Risk for Retinal Detachment, which uh, appeared in the November 25th episode of JAMA. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Hollins. Thank you, Dr. Kylo. Uh, Dr. Hollins is the Chief Resident in the Department of Ophthalmology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, he is starting a retina fellowship at the University of Toronto uh, in, uh, in about five months from now. He completed a master's degree in clinical epidemiology at Queen's University before completing medical school at the University of British Columbia. And for uh, such a youngster, and I mean that as a compliment, Hussein, you've got a tremendous number of publications. And uh, and so congratulations on all the hard work that you've done there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, As uh, as moderator of the call, it's my job to focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Uh, Holland's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article which is, after all, the purpose of these author-in-the-room calls. Uh, Here's how the hour will proceed. I will give Dr. Hussein uh, the mic here in just a little bit to review his article, which he'll spend about 10 minutes doing, Uh, and then we will summarize just very briefly, and we will turn it over to you for questions and comments. And I want to stress how important your participation is on these calls. Uh, This is a great forum to get clarification for anything in the article by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that you might take to use this information towards the improvement of care. So your participation is important not just in terms of uh, asking questions, but in terms of offering up your experience in this area, which will help uh, the, uh, the discussion. Uh, There are approximately 30 phone lines called in right now. Some members of the press may be present on a background basis only. Uh, One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as podcasts and complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available there. So with that, let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Hussein Hollins, who will provide an article, an overview of his article. Dr. Hollins? Thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Kahlo. Um, First, I'd like to thank uh, my co-authors in this, um, who helped with this paper over the last couple of years, specifically Davin Johnson, uh, Dr. David Almeida, Dr. David uh, Simmel, Dr. Anya Brox, and the senior author, Dr. Uh, Sanjay Sharma from Queen's University. 
Uh, also like to, like to thank the uh, IHI Institute for Healthcare Improvement and JAMA for sponsoring Author in the Room. And uh, essentially we had a number of reasons for writing this paper. Um, the first was to describe the uh, clinical spectrum of posterior vitreous detachment, um, or PVD, uh, retinal tears and retinal detachments. And our experience uh, from speaking with general physicians and uh, so forth is that um, a lot of people feel not completely as well trained as they'd like to be in ophthalmology with uh, uh, dealing with patients with visual problems. Certainly some of this content will be very basic to any uh, ophthalmologists who are listening, but still very useful for, um, for um, systems approaches and so forth. We wanted to outline a primary care approach for the valuation of patients with flashes and floaters. That was another reason. And we looked at risk factors based on a meta-analysis um, for retinal tear. And retinal tear is basically the initial complication uh, that happens in a proportion of people with flashes and floaters or posterior vitreous detachment that can lead to the cascade causing uh, retinal detachment. Finally, we wanted to suggest a triaging approach for patients with suspected posterior vitreous detachment or flashes and floaters. So. Um, I'm going to start about just summarizing a little bit about the pathology of posterior vitreous detachment. Uh, it's certainly the most common cause of flashes and floaters, especially if that's happening in one eye. Uh, it involves the separation of the posterior vitreous from the retina as a result of vitreous degeneration and shrinkage. Uh, this is an age-related event. It happens at around a mean age of 60, and there are other risk factors, including myopia. It's very, very common. Uh, its prevalence in the age group from 50 to 59 is about 24%, and that moves up to 87% in patients who are between 80 and 89 years old. So a very common event. Commonly presents with uh, patients describing floaters in one eye, usually a cobweb that moves through the eye, and also flashes of light, potentially. Uh, those are usually periphery in the periphery, periphery and white. Um, and our study showed that 14% of patients diagnosed with a posterior vitreous detachment by an ophthalmologist have a full thickness retinal tear or retinal hole. And this can lead to retinal detachment and, uh, if untreated, loss of vision. Um, what happens is that the, uh, that the liquefied vitreous jelly gains access to the subretinal space underneath the retina through that hole and can potentially detach the retina. So again, um, we'll talk about the approach to a patient with presumed posterior vitreous detachment or flashes and floaters. First of all, um, it's important to get an onset of, of and a history of any flashes or floaters when, when that occurred, um, and specifically whether it was one eye or two eyes. Also, subjective visual loss is important, and a history of a visual field defect or a curtain of darkness or, or uh, gray moving through the visual field um, is important. The most common disease that's often confused with posterior vitreous detachment is either migraine aura or acephalgic migraine. And acephalgic migraine is a migraine aura without the headache that, that um, typically occurs afterwards. And in the, uh, in the paper, we've outlined how to uh, differentiate those two entities based on, uh, based on history. Um, continuing on with the approach, the clinical exam um, 
is also important. And the first thing with that is to measure the visual acuity. That should be done in both eyes separately, um, with a uh, preferably at distance, and with the patient's best correction. So either glasses or contact lenses. And we also suggest, as a minimum, that that um, that a confrontational visual field is done again with both eyes separately. And this is to look for a peripheral visual field defect that may indicate a retinal detachment. And uh, finally, with respect to the eye examination, in the in the correct setting, if the equipment is available, and we don't recommend this as a uh, as part of the minimal evaluation, but certainly can be very very helpful, uh, is a slit lamp examination, looking for either vitreous pigment or vitreous hemorrhage, which we'll talk about later, or uh, direct ophthalmoscopy after pupil dilation um, can also be very very helpful in the correct setting. Again, that's not those two. Uh, we don't recommend as part of our initial um, evaluation. And then next is the idea to triage these patients or, or look at who's at high risk for having a uh, complication from posterior vitreous detachment. And that complication when it comes to the evidence is retinal tear. Again, the retinal tear can eventually lead to retinal detachment if untreated. So those are the patients that we want to catch at a early time so that we can uh, treat them before retinal detachment occurs. First of all, um, red flag features of retinal detachment. So this, these were not looked at specifically in the evidence. These are things that if you see, you sort of have to assume that, they, that something bad is happening. Um, a visual field defect, so if someone describes a curtain of darkness, um, if a patient does, or if uh, the physician looks in with the direct ophthalmoscope and sees a retinal detachment, then certainly these are uh, are high risk or red what we've called red flag features of retinal detachment, and they need to be patients uh, would need to be triaged triaged emergently. And next, um, we're looking for what we've defined in the paper as high risk features, and this. Um, Essentially, in this situation, we're looking for where, uh, out of the patients who come in with flashes and floaters and who have a posterior vitreous detachment, who is likely and who is not likely to have a retinal tear. And this is where the uh, meta-analysis came in. We looked at many, many articles uh, or reviewed many, many articles, came up with 17 that were appropriate, and we put those together in a form of meta-analysis looking for, um, again, features that would predict a retinal tear. We found that visual loss, um, specifically subjective visual loss, was associated with higher risk of retinal tear, and specifically the likelihood ratio that we found was five. Um, and also, if possible, if, if a uh, clinical exam with slit lamp can be done, vitreous hemorrhage was associated with a likelihood ratio of 10, and vitreous pigment or tobacco dust is associated with a, with a uh, likelihood ratio of 44. So vitreous hemorrhage or vitreous pigment, if um, you're able to detect these reliably, can be, uh, can be highly predictive of, of retinal tear. And the next thing, uh, moving on forward with the paper, we discuss uh, a triaging algorithm. And this is a sort of a guideline that we came up with to, um, for the triage of, of these patients. So certainly, if someone has a red flag sign of a retinal detachment, either a curtain of darkness or a retinal detachment that's that's seen by the physician, then a same-day emergent uh, consult should be uh, put in. The patient should be certainly seen immediately. Um, 
if someone has a high risk features, has a posterior vitreous detachment or presumed posterior vitreous detachment with high risk features, um, and these include again subjective or objective visual loss, uh, vitreous hemorrhage or vitreous pigment, again we do recommend a same day referral or evaluation to ophthalmology because the chance of retinal detachment, or sorry, sorry retinal tear is, is quite high, close to 50% or higher. Um, if someone has suspected posterior vitreous detachment without any high-risk features, then these patients can probably be seen a little bit less urgently, um, maybe even up to a week or two weeks, depending on the uh, consultant ophthalmologist that you're, uh, that you're dealing with. And someone who has stable flashes and floaters uh, certainly doesn't need a refer uh, an urgent referral and can be seen uh, non-urgently. We also did look at one other group of patients, and those are patients who uh, were diagnosed with a previous uncomplicated posterior vitreous detachment by an ophthalmologist. So that would be a, a posterior vitreous detachment without uh, a retinal tear. And in these um, and in this setting, if a patient gets develops new floaters or a new subjective visual reduction then they should be seen urgently probably within 24 hours by ophthalmology because this again indicates a high a much higher risk of um of a uh, retinal tear and uh with respect to author in the room we I just wanted to go over a couple of um of uh possible systems improvements with respect to working up patients with suspected posterior vitreous detachment and how we can um how we can make this relevant to people who are practicing uh who are practicing medicine. So uh, first of all, just the knowledge and the suggested uh, workup and triaging algorithm, I think, is important for generalist physicians who may uh, not be at all familiar with, um, with uh, the triage or the workup of these patients, uh, and specifically patients with, with flashes and floaters. So that's important. The second thing is uh, patient care facilities. So certainly this will depend on whether we're talking about a uh, single doctor's office or a multi-practice physician's clinic or an emergency room. But uh, at a minimum, certainly a, a calibrated distance eye chart should, should be available. And um, again, for any patient who comes in with eye complaints, and particularly those with flashes and floaters, um, a, a visual acuity should be measured in uh, in both eyes. And I think I was going to mention it earlier, but again, the uh, there there certainly um, is a difference between the between measuring the visual acuity and uh, and asking someone about their vision. We see very often patients come in with uh, with a lot of visual loss, down to even a hand movements type of a loss, and people who aren't overly observant, they won't notice because. Uh, especially elderly people or older people, um, may not notice that vision loss because, again, uh, vision is binocular, especially if someone has a dominant eye. The, if, the, if the other eye is the, uh, is the dominant eye, they may not even notice. So, again, visual acuity is very important. Um, and then in the, in, the, in the right setting, and specifically an emergency room or maybe a multi-practice physician's office, having access to dilating drops and a direct ophthalmoscope can be, be very useful. And also, um, certainly, access to a slit lamp biomicroscope uh, can be very, very useful. Um, the third thing, again, with respect to systems, would be communication between referring doctors and consultant ophthalmologists, and just having a system in place that uh, that allows for timely referral. Here in Kingston, we were lucky enough to have uh, residents such as myself and two of the other authors to run the uh, 
to run the emergency eye clinic uh, every morning, and um, the emergency rooms in Kingston have a couple pre-slated uh, slots that they're able to put any patient with an eye problem into, and we see them the following morning. Uh, obviously, if there's something more urgent, they can call us uh, call us at night, too. Uh, that's one way that works, but we would certainly, uh, the communication between the referring docs and consultant ophthalmologists is important. And uh, finally, just with respect to uh, public health and uh, and the community, posterior vitreous detachment, again, is a very common occurrence, and the complications um, can result in vision loss. So with, as with other diseases, I think educating the public regarding um, situations that would require urgent assessment, like we've talked about vision loss, curtain of, curtain of darkness, versus complaints that are non-urgent, uh, again, such as having floaters for the past uh, year or so, um, that knowledge put forth to the uh, to the public can certainly, uh, or I think, could certainly improve uh, improve public health. So that's sort of my overview. I'll pass it back to you, Dr. Kylo. Great, thank you, Hussein. Appreciate that. So now we want to turn to you uh, and to a discussion about uh, clinical practice. Uh, changes that we can make to incorporate the findings in this article and the recommendations into our clinical care. And uh, so we will have Talari open up the phone lines in just a minute and give you uh, instructions about how to go about doing that. As a primary care physician, I think one of the most curious, I think one of the key questions that I have, and uh, Dr. Hollins and I had some time to spend to talk about this in our preparatory calls, is really about that issue of floaters. How do I know for somebody who just comes in with floaters, which we see all the time, people who, who complain of sort of dirty vision and things like that, uh, when do we refer those? We'll hold on to that uh, for a question. We'll see what what uh, what questions or experiences other have others have, and I think we'll probably get to that point. So, Talari, let's hand it over to you for instructions. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question at this time, please do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit one on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. And once again, that's star one if you have a question or comment at this time. And we'll pause a brief moment. And once again, everyone, it is star one if you have a question or comment. So let's, uh, uh, Hussein, let's go ahead and talk about that issue of, and you did mention it in your overview, which was great. Uh, I guess to me, again, as a primary care physician, uh, a couple things really matter is, you know, differentiating what I shouldn't worry about from what I should worry about, and then having really good access. And in Portland, Oregon, at least where I am, we do have really good access to our ophthalmology groups who will uh, almost always see somebody same day uh, if we uh, if we give them a call. Uh, which I think is a key part of the system changes that we need is that sort of access to our ophthalmology colleagues, uh, uh, which really reduces, uh, I think, a lot of the concern that I have. I don't, I don't feel like I over-refer because of that or under-refer. It's just nice when I think that there is an, a relative emergency to be able to get get people in that quickly. Yeah, exactly. The um, certainly the, we find that the communication between the uh, between between us here in Kingston and the referring doctors is um, is good, and we have a we have a um, we have a setup as I said before, where the emergency physicians can just um, send someone in, in the next for the next morning, and they'll be seen no matter what. So that that makes it even easier from a referring uh, doctor's point of view, at least from the emergency room, and then uh, certainly the residents field calls uh, in the community. 
the um, it may not be e it may not be easy to set something up that um, you know where there's pre-booked spots, but as you point out, the the communication between the the physician and consultant ophthalmologist certainly uh, certainly key there. Other thoughts then about this issue of sort of dirty vision, and when when patients come in, you went over it I think nicely in your in your review. It is from a primary care perspective, it is the main thing that I deal with is understanding again when when I should be you know pretty concerned versus when to just reassure the patient that that it's nothing. Right. And again, if there you know if there's the curtain uh, sort of symptom or other really dramatic symptoms, that's pretty easy. Yeah, uh, and I prefer to over over consult rather than under consult uh, in those in instances. If I even have a hint that there's something bad going on, but it is all that sort of dirty vision, mild floaters have been going on for a while. Any any additional thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean that makes sense exactly. Anything that uh, anything um, to me, a lot of it has to do with change and the speed of change that I ask about. So. You know, when we when we see patients, as with uh, as as what you're describing, uh, so many people have floaters that are that are just going on, and if they've been going on for, uh, you know, for for three months, for six months, for nine months, for a year, if they've never been checked out, it's always a good um, idea to have them checked out, but certainly non-urgently. Um, there is a chance that there's a retinal tear there or something going on, and certainly we recommend having having someone checked out. With who just does have um, floaters, but it does not need to be urgent. To me, when I'm asking history, a lot of it has to do with uh, to do with what and and when has has things changed. So any increase in the floaters is what I'm looking for. And again, worst case is a shower of floaters. Anyone who describes a a shower of floaters, and one of the studies actually looked specifically at the number ten. I don't think the number ten means anything. Um, Anything exactly, but again, the idea of, of change in the uh, in the floaters, and then uh, and then of course vision vision loss as well. So I think uh, I think that you're on the right track with uh, you know if, if something's happened like a curtain of darkness, you've got to be over cautious um, and otherwise just look at uh, at the timing is is also important. Sure. Dr. Laurie, anybody in the queue? We have no one in our queue at this time, but just a reminder, it's star one if you have a question or comment. Yeah, and you can help us out by engaging in the conversation. I'm absolutely happy to talk to Hussein uh, for, for a while. We had a great prep call, and we can do so here. But uh, having your thoughts and your uh, experiences would be great. And as an example, I'm interested in what uh, some of the uh, call participants have done in terms of access, because I think it really is a critical issue. And Hussein, I was interested in uh, in the system that you have in place uh, where there is a staffed uh, sort of er emergency uh, morning ophthalmology clinic that anybody can get booked into. Right. Uh, in Portland, we seem to have good just general access, at least to our private practice op uh, ophthalmologists. I don't know if that means we have an oversupply of ophthalmologists. I guess that's a possibility. But yeah, exactly. Nonetheless, we have really good we have really good access to them. What you've done is something different, but uh, I think that access to uh, you know, a very quick assessment is really critical in this case to preserve, help preserve vision. Um, and I'm curious what you've seen out there and what others' uh, experiences are for those on the call are in terms of making sure that there is good access to these kinds of services. Yeah. Um, so, again, what we do is we've got, uh, we've got for the emergency room, we've got a couple pre-booked spots, and then every morning a resident-run clinic with uh, – 
with us with a staff person who's supervising and seeing the patients as well is coming in and uh, certainly in Kingston a, a population of about 110,000 or so we see a number of um, of patients every morning that are urgent and then many more that are follow-ups from that clinic but um, flashes and floaters is is by far the most common thing we see in that uh, in that clinic, but there are definitely other uh, eye problems that need emergency or maybe not emergency, but but uh, but quick quick referral, um, corneal ulcers and uh, foreign bodies, things like that. All we see frequently in that clinic, and certainly the way that we have it works out very very well. But then we have the luxury of being in a in a um, in a position with having residents to field a practice like that. In the community, um, again, if you have a lot of ophthalmologists or oversupply, then it's probably easy to find care. Um, but one of the ways that, uh, that I know some communities do it is, again, whoever's running uh, call for that week or for that, that night uh, could potentially have um, a couple slots in their clinic for the following morning. Um, and clearly, if anything's more urgent, it can be it can be referred over the phone. So again, that's 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 uh, our experience in Kingston, and we find it works we find it works quite well. And um, again, the communication I think is key. Once uh, uh, there is an emerging uh, and uh, certainly growing and necessary focus on coordination of care and transitions in care. Um, I think there tends to be relatively uh, little communication back and forth between ophthalmology and uh, and primary care, and it certainly is one of the things we need to work on, uh, even in something like a diabetic retinopathy exam where the primary care uh, clinic really needs to know that that occurred and what the findings were uh, just for their own knowledge to make sure that the appropriate prevention is being done and for, for data collection so that they can make sure that their performance on eye exams making sure that people get their eye exam is, is appropriate. In this instance, obviously, you refer the patient off, and I'm assuming the ophthalmologists are going to do everything that they need to do in order to take care of the patient. Uh, is there any particular follow-up uh, that I need to do as a primary care physician other than to make sure that the patient got there? Uh, it doesn't seem to me that there are any downstream implications for my interaction, although I'd certainly like to get the notes back from the ophthalmologist. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, there, there, there's a couple things. First of all, um, you know, in ophthalmology, we, we've probably got the most, well, I'm not sure, but it, it seems like we have a lot of acronyms, and that's what um, we're all, people are always commenting on it. So classically, I think, uh, from our perspective, we write letters and tend to write notes back that, um, that probably, if we worked on it, could make more sense. They, yeah, uh, they're, they're fairly illegible. The they're fairly illegible, that. exactly. And people don't know what all of our terminology is. I mean, sure. me call, uh, using the word PVD here, uh, we tried to, at one point, we tried to get away from that in the article because it was uh, going to be confused with peripheral vascular disease. So um, I think that's one thing that certainly, as ophthalmologists, we can, uh, we can improve on is writing uh, writing better communication with respect to posterior vitreous detachment and uh, and retinal detachment and so forth. Um, you know the one the one uh, setting that we did look at from an evidence based perspective in our meta analysis again was the setting of a uh, of a patient who comes in with posterior vitreous detachment has a full eye exam and is cleared of any retinal tear or any um, 
or any uh, or any retinal hole. Um, generally, the the dogma is to see those patients six weeks after to recheck, mm-hmm. and some of those patients will have a retinal tear. So about three to four percent of those patients, that's what we found in our study in our meta-analysis, actually will have a retinal tear that is presumably new that was not there at the first at the first uh, at the, the first time. So um, we we did do a meta-analysis looking for um, looking for predictors of someone who's going to come in, not have a retinal tear at baseline, and end up being diagnosed with a di- retinal tear at six weeks. And um, there, are, there are predictors of that new retinal tear, and those predictors are new floaters and new subject of visual reduction. So in that interim, if you've sent, uh, if, if someone has been sent in for for uh, for, P, for flashes and floaters, been diagnosed with a PVD um, and no retinal damage, um, then any new symptom of uh, subjective visual reduction or new floaters. And again, this is where uh, the history is important. It's got to be new because the floaters aren't going to go away. They'll slowly get uh, so that the people so that people notice them less but they're not going to go away. So any new symptom of floaters and any new symptom of subjective visual reduction in that time frame um, is, is quite predictive, actually, of a retinal tear. So that's, that's about, um, that would be one important thing to keep a, keep a lookout for if you were to see a patient in follow-up um, uh, in that setting. With respect to primary care, there won't be any specific follow-up that you'll be required to do in general um, in that setting. Right. Very helpful. Uh, Talari? And we do have a question uh, from Joel Porter in private practice. Great. Welcome, Joel. Hi. Hi, Joel. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I may have missed uh, any of your discussion earlier because uh, I came on a little late, but uh, I noticed that you had a comment uh, about having the patients dilated uh, by either the general physician or the emergency room physician. And I wanted to comment on your stating that there was no absolute contraindication to use nitriatic drops uh, in in patients, uh, as well as uh, aside from uh, known allergy. And then the other comment about not needing to check the intraocular pressure uh, uh, by the general physician. Uh, I, I'm sure as an ophthalmologist, you, you might uh, agree that uh, there might be some concern about dilating patients because of the possibility of, of causing uh, angle closure glaucoma. And for that reason as well, if someone is going to dilate them, uh, then the, the need to know the intraocular pressure before they were dilated would be quite important. Sure. Um... Thanks, Dr. Porter. The uh, the um, yeah. So to to answer that question, Dr. Porter does bring up a very um, a very important point, and this is something that uh, I know we hear a lot from the general from from family physicians and generalist physicians, emergency doctors, with respect to um, should you or should you not dilate up a uh, a, a patient to look for retinal pathology and um, and certainly, that's something that that uh, a question that we get very, very often. So, um, we wrote that we certainly wrote that we do recommend uh, dilation in uh, in the right circumstance. So, if somebody 
has a for a generalist position, if somebody um, is comfortable with the direct ophthalmoscope and so forth. But as Dr. As Dr. Porter points out, uh, there is a risk of causing angle closure glaucoma with dilating drops. Um, and it's a tough question, and it's something that has been looked at in the literature. And we did a bit of a review on this, and um, recently a systematic review came out and looked at um, primary care physicians dilating patients, and they came up with a risk of about 1 in 20,000. So certainly uh, that risk does exist. And, um, the, and again, the risk is to dilate the patient and with that dilation causing, the, uh, causing an angle closure glaucoma. Um, we felt that that risk was low enough that it's worthwhile or, or the, the benefits outweigh the risks um, with respect to the information that you get from dilating the, the patient. But absolutely, Dr. Porter's uh, right that that is a risk and also that um, that informed uh, consent is um, would be very important. With respect to um, intraocular pressure, again, uh, ideally in an ophthalmologist office, the intraocular pressure would be checked before um, before patient dilation. Um, but that's certainly a lot of times not practical in the uh, in the primary care setting and emergency room setting. So we've uh, we didn't. We decided not to recommend doing that in this in this setting, and certainly uh, other people might have other opinions with regard to the safety of that. But to us, um, sort of looking at the literature and looking at the evidence, uh, the risk of one in twenty thousand of a uh, of an angle closure attack um, was fairly low, and the uh, the benefit of um, of dilation we were. Um, we were happy. So hopefully that answers a little bit, but certainly Dr. Porter makes a very good point with respect to dilating. It's a question that we get uh, that we get very, very often, and, and, and that was our opinion. I'm certainly happy to, uh, to hear other people's opinion about it also. It strikes me that those particular issues are really pertinent for the rural primary care physician to the rural emergency room where they might not have good access to ophthalmology. Uh, from my perspective, you know, again, in a urban environment where I have really good access, I haven't, I've never dilated somebody in the in the primary care setting, nor would I envision a need to do so. Right. Uh, fortunately, but again, if I was practicing in a r rural community where I did not have access, and that would be a very different uh, uh, situation, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it, there's absolutely no question about that. That the uh, that the access is very very important. The benefit, the the potential benefit gained. From uh, from dilating and doing that examination is going to be very different depending on the um, depending on a lot of factors rural versus urban the comfort level um, that the examiner has and uh, and so forth so certainly um, certainly that's going to depend uh, great Dr Porter anything else appreciate your uh, your question no I, I I thank you for addressing them. Uh, 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 we, as the, all, all you uh, authors are, I'm sure, are well aware of the the uh, the rare but uh, observed uh, occasional patient who shows up even uh, in an eye uh, clinic uh, who gets an inadvertent angle closure uh, caused by dilation uh, during a routine exam, uh, and it's it's certainly something that's kept me. Uh, uh, well aware of the of the risk and making.
making sure that I screen the patient up beforehand before I dilate them. Uh, and uh, but I think uh, your comment about the uh, this being uh, one in twenty thousand, if that be the case, is certainly uh, quite low. And the uh, and certainly uh, uh, as you're recognizing in a uh, rural setting, up this is an excellent article to help manage patients who otherwise uh, wouldn't have access to an ophthalmologist uh, handy, and this uh, is very useful to uh, educate the uh, general physician and emergency room physicians uh, in, the, in the whole process of floaters, and I congratulate you for the article. Thank you very much, Dr. Porter. Yeah, the, um, the, as, uh, as you mentioned, the dilation is a, and you wouldn't believe how many times we've been, uh, we've been asked that question, and not just after that, after this article, but, uh, you know, it, um, with, uh, family medicine residents rotating through our, our clinics and so forth, it's certainly a, um, a question that comes up, and the, uh, and the possibility of angle closure with dilation is real, um, so it is something that's there, but certainly the uh, I think um, overall the risk is is low, and uh, it's certainly also as we talked about before going to depend highly on uh, on the person who's doing the exam and how much information they feel they can get from uh, from doing the examination. And certainly much lower in the in the myopic population. From uh, for the risk of angle closure, uh, that would definitely be true. Yes. Great. That's another, that's another excellent point. Yeah. Thank you again, Dr. Porter. Uh, Talari? Just a reminder, star one if you have a question or comment at this time. Hussein, are there any other, uh, um, uh, any other system issues that the rural uh, or the rural physician or the physician who might exist in a uh, community health center uh, that may be taking care of indigent patients and not have good access to, op to an ophthalmologist. Uh, any other things that they ought to be uh, sort of taking into consideration? Obviously, I think in those settings, as we've talked about, being able to dilate an eye and know what you're looking at would be a useful thing. Yeah. Um, the uh, Definitely. So I think we talked about facilities and um for instance we, we deal with a um we deal with a native Canadian population in um that's uh up north that we have to uh fly in if they have um if they run into troubles with eye problems. So we, we in Kingston actually deal with that with a um with that sort of a population frequently. Um I think Medical education is is important here, and when um, and as you said, if uh, if we're able to get uh, medical students and family family uh, family medicine residents, emergency room residents comfortable with pupil dilation and direct ophthal ophthalmoscopy, and also with slit lamp biomicroscopy, um, that's going to be very important in uh, ruling in or ruling out these diseases. Again, with uh, as our as we mentioned with this paper. If someone's able to act accurately use a slit lamp and uh, be able to um, accurately, accurately rule in or rule out vitreous hemorrhage or vitreous pigment, then uh, the diagnostic accuracy of our of of uh, predicting retinal tear is is greatly improved. 
And um, we find we, we have, uh, in our clinics here, we get emergency room physicians coming through for a couple of weeks routinely, uh, sorry, the re residents, and we also get family medicine residents coming through our rotation for a couple of weeks. Whereas um, in medical school, oftentimes in Canada, there is no, uh, there is no uh, general rotation for the medical students to go through. And uh, we find that at the end of the week for, or the end of the two weeks for the emergency room physicians or the family medicine residents, they're actually uh, very, very good with the, with the direct ophthalmoscope and they're actually very, very good with the slit lamp, uh, certainly good enough to accurately rule in or rule out uh, tobacco dust or to see a large um, retinal detachment with direct ophthalmoscope. Um, again, that's working every day on, on patients and, and teaching and so forth, but I think that medical education is, uh, is something that's, that's important from, for, the, for, the, uh, for the training residents as well with respect to this paper. Wonderful. Talari? And we do have an additional question from Terrence Duke with 377th Medical Group. Hi, this is Dr. Niffin. Yeah, how you doing? Great. Say, how much does a family history weigh into a risk assessment for a patient? Uh, would, if there's a family history of retinal detachment, would that be a helpful indicator for referring the patient more quickly or dilating them more urgently? Right. Um, that's a... That's certainly a good um, a good question and something that we get uh, that we get commonly. Um, just from just from anecdotally, I would say that the answer is yes with respect to an increased risk, um, and that's what we would probably read in the uh, in the textbooks that uh, that a family history is important. Um, that was not studied specifically in uh, in the papers that we read. Uh, enough that we could that we put it in our meta analysis. So we didn't study that. Um, we weren't able to study and get an evidence based um, get an evidence based answer to that question. And there again, that uh, goes with the idea of doing meta analysis research is that you uh, is that you look at what what evidence is available there. Um, when I'm seeing someone in the clinic who who describes having a family history of retinal detachment, it certainly increases my awareness and uh, and increases my pretest probability. Um, but I I, uh, I would say that with respect to um, looking at the other things are much more important. So the vision loss and the other findings that you find. I hope that um, that makes some sense. I would say yes, it's probably a risk factor. That I don't know that it would change your um, change the management hugely in terms of absolutely needing a urgent referral versus uh, versus not. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. No problem. We have no further questions in our queue at this time. But just a reminder to star one if you have a question or comment. And there are no further questions in our queue at this time.
And I'll turn the call back over to our speakers for any final or additional comments. Dr. Kylo, are you there? Oh, sorry about that. I had to mute on and I was speaking to myself. <laughs> I apologize for that. Happens all the time. Uh, so um, if there are no additional uh, uh, questions, uh, we will go ahead and summarize the call. And uh, Dr. Hollins, uh, any, any last uh, uh, statements on the topic? Um, no, not, not specifically. Great. Uh, so it's been a wonderful discussion, and I really appreciate Dr. Holland's contribution in this regard and in the article. Uh, it's been enlightening for me and uh, I think for you as well. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And our next conversation will be uh, on um, – where is my paper? It is uh, Tuesday, February 17th. And the article is Medical Care for the Final Years of Life by Dr. David Rubin. Should be a wonderful call. Uh, and that, that um, article occurred in the, appeared in the December 23rd, uh, 2009 issue of JAMA. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thank you for being part of today's call. Good day. Thank and you that very does, much. That does conclude our conference call for today, everyone. Thank you all for your participation.